Ryan. And I'm JP. And we are Socially Isolated. Today, we want to talk about the Sundance Film Festival, which just wrapped up on February 3rd after being an all virtual for the first time. Ryan, what do you think when you hear Sundance? Well, of course, I think the most exciting indie and, and Hollywood films, they're not, they're not technically the most indie of indie films, but uh, up and coming actors, I think of long lines and ticket wrangling and snow Thanks, great and, to be here. you know, a little bit of the hassle of going to a film festival. I, I hear there's always a lot of snow from the people that I've, I've talked to about it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of funny because I feel like a lot of these people come from LA and then they, they go to, to Salt Lake City where they can talk to the same people with much more difficult conditions, but they do, well, but it is its own experience going out there. Well, today we are lucky enough to have two local film aficionados here to talk to us about their experience with the Sundance Film Festival. Jace Hutchinson is a journalist at the News Tribune, contributor at The Stranger, where he helps a team cover Sundance and host of the Scratch Cinema Podcast. And Philip Cowan has been the executive director at the Grand Cinema for 14 years and has been attending the Sundance Film Festival ever since 2010. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, guys, I would love to hear just how different things were this year. Could, could you guys sort of just break it down for us? What was, what was different this year and what was the experience like? I had thought the experience overall was pretty remarkable, all things considered. It's not an easy undertaking to take everything online. It's a lot of bandwidth to suddenly have to deal with. There didn't seem to be any big, large issues. I know people struggled with sometimes the windows were a little small for when you could watch the films. But on the whole, I thought even though the circumstances that necessitated it were not great, a, a global pandemic, the fact that it hopefully increased access for a lot of people was, was a good thing. It, it makes it so you don't have to travel down to Park City in the future. And obviously post-COVID world means we might not see as many virtual festivals, but possibly a virtual component to increase the widespread availability of films, I, I think could be a good thing. Um, I covered it for The, the Stranger and this is gonna be a very niche press thing, but Oftentimes when you get a screener of a film, there will be your name or email in big, bold letters over the film, which is very distracting and not exactly how I imagine the filmmaker intended it. And in, in this, it was just a small, unobtrusive little name that would pop up every once in a while. And the presentation was great. A lot of the Q&As were great. I, I think it came together really remarkably well. Yeah, I, I echo that. I've, you know, I've been going to Sundance for a long time. And you know, the, the main reason I'm there is to, to see the films and make decisions on the films for what the grand might want to play sometime in the future. So the core of it, I was still doing the same thing. Um, you know, it's vastly different. Uh, you know, the, the thing I miss is getting the buzz that you get from watching a film with a large crowd. Uh, and then also talking to people in line and it's like, oh, you just saw movie A, I, you really need to see this film. And I'm thinking it's like, oh, it wasn't really on my list. And then I move things up. And so I didn't get that. Um, but uh, I was watching other friends post on social media and other people in the industries and still kind of get that, but maybe in a slightly more delayed fashion. Were there still some movies that kind of came to the top that were the buzzworthy titles? Yeah, as, as things... As, as things moved along, you, you would hear of ones, there was, there was one that I only caught uh, towards the very end that played originally early, but then came back with some of the, uh, the award-winning ones was one called the, On the Count of Three, which I didn't really originally have on my list. And then it, 
everybody was saying, you need to see this film. And so I caught that one at the end and it was really well worth it. Any, any time, it was a kind of a comedy uh, of two, two best friends and deciding to commit suicide, which was kind of a one that I thought, ah, I'm not really sure I want to see that one, but it's, it was yeah. a very well done film. If I could chime in on that, I, I was a big fan of Gerard Carmichael and he wrote and directed it in his feature debut and he typically has done stand up, but he also had the Carmichael show and his brand of humor has very much been sort of very darker reflections on life. And it, the more I've reflected on it, the more I think he really created something interesting and special. It's going to be a lot. It's pretty heavy because it's them doing things on their last day that they normally wouldn't do because there are consequences and repercussions. But when they've decided together that they're no longer going to live, it creates a really interesting narrative framing that is going to push some buttons, but I think in a way that really challenges audiences. And I, I enjoyed it as well. Interesting. I'm curious how many uh, films the two of you actually had a chance to, uh, to view. I think Philip had me beat, so I'll let him go first. Yeah, I... I see, you know, I, this is my job. So I'm trying to see as many as I can. And in, in seven days, I fit in 39 films. Oh, wow. Uh, so I had my, when I'm at Sundance, usually about once a year, I'll see six films in a day, but that's really hard. Uh, and I'm falling asleep by the end of it. Today I had, or this year I had seven or two days that I saw seven films. Uh, and that's, that was the nice thing about being at home. I can, get up and start seeing one at 7.30 in the morning and then kind of pause things as you need to during the day or go for a walk if you're feeling sleepy and then get back to it. But yeah, you, you can cram in a lot. And I, and I will say of those 39 films, two of them I, I bailed on kind of 45 minutes or an hour in because it started to become obvious like, okay, I've seen enough. I, you know, I've made my decision that I would, would not play that at the grand so I can just move on. For me, I don't think I was quite pushing that many. I think I was probably around 20. Um, but that is largely a product of the fact that I was writing about things that I'd seen afterwards. So I would sort of take a break and write and gather my thoughts and reflect on it and, and put something together. And I, I didn't end up bailing on any, thankfully. But I think that was because I was trying to look at ones like from the go, what would be ones that I would be interested in seeing in review. Whereas, Philip, I, I think you were trying to just see as wide a breath as possible to see if there was literally anything you could bring. Um, so I didn't end up quite seeing as many, but the ones I saw were very good. And how soon do you think the rest of us might be able to watch some of these in this, in the new paradigm, how quickly can they get turned around to, to streaming channels or be part of the Grand's virtual cinema? Well, I, I know it's, and I can't remember the name, it was one of the films in the, the midnight section that's, that's already out um, by one of the distributors. And so some of them, it, you know, usually, over the course of the year, they trickle out. Um, some of them will come out a little bit earlier this year. Um, I know one of one of my favorites is one uh, called Philly DA. It's a documentary. I went in not a lot of times at Sundance. You, you there's no trailers for the film. There's no reviews, so you kind of go in pretty blind on these. And turns out Philly DA is one that's a PBS uh, documentary series. Um, and I saw the first two episodes of that at Sundance, and I think it's coming on in April. Highly recommend that. Uh, it's about a documentary about the their district attorney that was elected a couple of years ago. Who spent his life as a as a defense attorney, and now is on the other side of it. And the police is not a big fan of him as having opposed him for over the years. Uh, and it's a really fascinating look. And I think a lot of people, if you're 
if you're someone who's maybe critical of our police forces these days, it's a must see. I was going to say kind of in line with that. I saw Judas and the Black Messiah, which is coming out on February 12th on HBO Max. I know that isn't through a, a local team, but I think the Northwest Film Forum is doing a special screening of some I do. Kind. I've got my tickets to that. I know. It's very exciting because they were a great sort of local host connection, which I thought was very exciting with the Pacific Northwest being represented that way. But I would really recommend Judas and the Black Messiah. It's essentially about Fred Hampton and the work he was doing with the Illinois Black Panther Party, which is a very undertold part of American history for a lot of different reasons. But I think it represents a series of phenomenal performances because it's not just Fred Hampton in the film, but it is also Lakeith Stanfield as the real life infiltrator who was spying on them for the government. And it creates a really kind of serious tension throughout the entire film to see that and know that. It's been compared to The Departed, but I think there's a lot more interesting ideological, political observations taking place there. And that's that's the one that I think that's coming out soonest that I that I would really recommend people see. Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton is fantastic. I had been a little burnt out after a previous film this year, The Trial of the Chicago 7, had Fred Hampton briefly show up in the background and then kind of disappear and so i think this is a film that really pays more tribute to his legacy and gives him more the due he deserved of a full film shall we also talk about the big one of the big fish of the festival did you guys get a chance to see coda i did i I did as well so coda is the one if i've got my my uh industry stats right was the record-breaking sale for 25 million something like that it was, and, and it was the opening night film. So it was, of my 39 films, it was the very first one I saw. And it definitely was the best that I saw. It was so well done. Definite tearjerker, uh, will have broad appeal. Um, unfortunately, it's probably not gonna be in theaters because you talk about the price and there's not too many places it can pay that price, but Apple is one of them. And so in some fashion, it will be playing on Apple. And, but they, since they haven't bought too many movies, there's always a chance maybe that they might do a theatrical, but I haven't heard that one way or the other. And I had also seen it and I thought it was a, a really good sweet start to the festival because essentially the story, because the title is a double entendre where CODA stands for a child of deaf adults, but then it's also about a character becoming very musically interested, which to me was interesting because I had seen Sound of Metal last year, which is very different in tone and is much more serious, but I think it represents more rich, diverse stories in a variety of genres about deaf families, deaf characters that very much pay respect to them because the this, the family is the absolute standout of it. And they're all really fantastic and all really charming and all really interesting. And while I certainly say it's definitely family-friendly fare, I think it also just has kind of a compelling core because of all the characters and how much humanity and growth you get to go with them. And it's it's really great. Were there any other um, feel-good movies that you that you all saw, or uh, movies that you're um, you have in, in the checkbox of I've got to see it again? So I don't see too many films twice because I just don't have time for that. I'm always having to move on. Um, but Sundance through the years, they kind of inadvertently or maybe intentionally they develop a theme a little bit from year to year as some of the movies that accept and maybe it's just societally that we're trying to make a certain kind of film. Um, but this year, not surprisingly, there were a few films with very strong women characters. Um, and I really got into a few of those. They're, they're all fairly small films. So you're, you're not gonna see them as a big blockbuster, but 
it's an example. One of them was called Hive. And it was a film from Kosovo, uh, so totally subtitled. Uh, and it's about women whose husbands or other family members have disappeared uh, during the war over there and what life is like for them uh, and waiting to find out whether their loved one is alive or dead and then how they make it in a society that doesn't favor women in their place and but still trying to make it without that head breadwinner there anymore. Uh, another one was a, a documentary, My Name is Polly Murray, which is uh, from the filmmakers who did the uh, documentary RBG. Really interesting one, the, someone that you probably, most people have never heard of, but you definitely need to learn more about uh, this person who was a uh, groundbreaking African-American woman uh, in the mid part of the century, becoming one of the first women to do many roles, um, one of the first black people to do many roles, one of the first people to, to be gender non-conforming in, in a lot of this. And, and she was a, a role model for somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, so definitely see that one. I love legal movies. Uh, so just a fascinating person. Uh, and then another one more, uh, Riding with Fire. Uh, it follows a bunch of young women uh, starting up a, a newspaper in India. And they're from the lowest Dalit caste there in India. And they're people who you do not expect things from especially there in India, and they're doing a great job covering stories that nobody else wants to cover, uh, and then getting a lot of publicity out of that. So those were all films that were really pretty inspiring, and they're ones that you're going to have to search out for. Hopefully, they'll come out at a time where the Grand can play them. I'd love to do a series with them, um, but there's that's one of the things that Sundance does best is gives voices to, to topics and filmmakers that, that otherwise may not get a lot of recognition. Nice, nice. Chase, what about you? I was going to say kind of along those lines of topics that don't get enough recognition. For, for The Stranger, I had written about all the films that kind of tackle environmental concerns in their own separate ways. Um, and they were two documentaries and a, I would say still a narrative film, but it used a lot of non-professional actors in a way that made it feel very grounded in reality. And that first one was Luzu. And it was a very interesting story about this man who is attempting to support his family while still attempting to be a fisher in his traditional way, but seeing that slowly disappear. And it's subtle and it's not always very present, but I, I got to interview the director and he talked about how our generation is increasingly going to be telling stories where climate change and the impacts of it are part of the stories we tell, where it's maybe not the focus, but is influencing things where if you are a fisherman, that is very quickly becoming... A, a less likely thing that you're going to be able to do. Um, and I thought it was really interesting and kind of tackled it from a unique perspective. And then there was this documentary called Bring Your Own Brigade, which was about fires kind of broadly, but then also specific to California and the increased fire seasons that we're seeing and how that season is becoming almost a year, that it's not something that just happens every summer when things get drier and hotter. And it was this really interesting director basically embedding herself with a lot of the people experiencing this, attempting to fight this, and not just what she took away from it, but from what these people took away from it. And there is a lot of hope in it, but it is still very bleak. There is a lot of detail about how people would be attempting to, to flee these fires and would see the world basically crumbling around them and melting around them and thinking this was it and still managing to survive, but them being the lucky ones. Um, it's, it's very 
unflinching, but still very engaging. And what was interesting is then the last documentary I was going to reference is Swimming with Sharks. And I had talked with the director of that, and she had said they had to actually delay some of their shooting because of the Australian bushfires, which is also briefly referenced in this documentary. But basically, the Playing with Sharks documentary is about this woman who was a very famous Australian, I would say, TV biologist in some ways who was looking at sharks in a way that we hadn't seen them before. She helped work on Jaws and kind of changed her career path to be much more about the preservation of sharks and their species and habitat. And it's it's maybe a little bit more straightforward when it comes to its presentation, but still, especially for an American audience, is something that wouldn't typically be seen and wouldn't you wouldn't be able to see this person and what what their historical impact was and how they're still going out, I think almost above 90 years old and swimming with sharks and arguing for their preservation. And so those those were kind of three environmental documentaries or documentary adjacent films that kind of were very arresting to me. Chase, one of the movies I wanted to ask you about as a, as a horror aficionado, but also I, I, from what I understand, Sundance had made pretty uh, significant strides this year in their representation of female directors. So you had a, a review of Censor that caught my eye. I'd love you to talk more about that one. Yeah, Censor was really great. I was considering mentioning it just before when you were saying like feel-good movies, but I feel like if I were to say Censor was my feel-good movie, that would make me seem a little bit weirder than I am, even though it still felt good to me because I, I really enjoyed what it was doing. It essentially is a horror movie set in the UK in the mid-1980s during the real-life moral panic surrounding what they called the video nasties, which just were kind of very like hyper-violent, gory, but almost to like a absurd degree horror films that some of the more reactionary forces were convinced that this ilk of films would destroy the moral fabric of society. Um, it's directed and it's the feature debut of uh, Prano Bailey Bond, who has made this very interesting story of this woman who is tasked with being the censor and how she has to give them a rating that will protect the public, which is a job she takes very seriously. Like she's very genuine that she's doing an important job. But what ends up happening in the process of this work is the horror films begin to echo parts of her own past and a traumatic event from her own past. And her world around her begins to eerily replicate much of what she's seeing. And I think even if you're not a horror fan, this represents an interesting genre entry that also proves to be a really well executed character piece as well to see her world kind of slowly warp and change really gets under your skin and you're really hoping that she's going to find a way out of this and you're connected with her character and the ending, which, which some people were a little thrown by worked for me precisely because of how unhinged it became where you began to really have a hard time trusting what was happening it, it was probably one of my second best films that I had the chance to, to write about. I think it marks a really interesting voice in horror, in film generally, that, that I would recommend. That, that was one of my favorite films, too. And it's, it's, it's nice to have kind of a period piece that's a horror film. So you kind of combine that. And, you know, we're always at the mercy of distributors of who buys it and when it comes out and things like that. But it's, it's one I would like to be able to bring to the grand if the opportunity presents itself. That kind of uh, is an interesting uh, topic. I, I'm curious, Philip, in a normal time, how does a film from the Sundance Film Festival get to the Grand Cinema? Well, since most of the films are debuting there, except for one little small spotlight section, um, you know, distributors show up at the festival and decide to buy films and which ones that they might want for their company. Uh, once they do that, then that's when those are the people that we connect with over the course of the next year or sometimes two. It takes a while for some films to get out there. So once it's 
purchased by a distributor, then we start talking to them once they come up with their release plan. And, and they always try to piece the jigsaw puzzle of movies throughout the year of trying to find the best date for a film, maybe based on what genre it is or how big it is or making sure it's not landing the same day as another film that's very similar to it. So they're pirating attendance off of each other. Um, so I, you know, over the course of a year, I probably end up playing maybe 60% of the films that I see at Sundance. Um, and just from eyeballing it in, in a normal year, which this is certainly not a normal year, usually a film start coming out in around August and September tends to be the bulk of them, but, but some of them will come out literally weeks after Sundance. And then some of the ones that played at Sundance last year still aren't out yet. So it, it just kind of depends on on everything and you know if you're a filmmaker you're wanting to sell your film for as much as possible as well so sometimes you hold out for a little bit better deal to see if that might come along. How much of a presence did COVID have in the the films that you guys watched? I particularly saw you you didn't see references to COVID um well I think there was one documentary that was specifically about that which I didn't see but uh, but one movie that I saw was called How It Ends uh and it was written shot and edited and everything during COVID. So uh, it was a comedy and I really liked it, especially it was very, very low budget, but it was essentially a, a woman in her, I guess, mid thirties uh, who was walking around town on the last day of the world, which it's never addressed of why it's the last day of the world, but everyone's very accepted of it, accepting of it. Nobody's panicking. They just know, oh, the world's going to end tonight. But she's walking around with her maybe 20 year old self they're having conversations and going back to see her father and her mother and various other people through their lives. Um, and it's all very clear as they walk through the streets that the two of them are very socially distanced. When they go in and have conversations with other people, there's lots of uh, cameo appearances in there from like Bradley Whitford from West Wing and things like that. And from what I read about it, I think a lot of them, they went and shot literally at the other actors' houses or in their backyards. And I think they would probably just agree like, okay, let's do a little scene and you can stand on your balcony and we'll stand in your courtyard and we'll do your one scene and then we'll move on. And so when you watch the movie, knowing that COVID is going on, you see that, that what's happening, but there's, it's never really addressed itself in the film. Yeah, I, I just thought it was brilliant that they were able to conceptualize a movie that is socially distanced, but not in a weird way, not in a, you know, addressed way in the movie, but it's, it's happening. And if you're paying attention to it, you can, you can, I, I just thought they did a great job. So one movie I want to be sure to talk about, cause it's high on my list is Crypto Zoo. What did you guys think of that one? If you had a chance to watch it? I thought the, it was pretty great. I think the best part of it was the the animation. It's going to be something that is a little bit surreal to some people that don't know what they're getting into. But if you ever had heard or seen of this 2016 film called My Entire High School is Falling Under the Sea or Into the Sea, I believe, it's it's similar to that in like the strangeness of it. But whereas that film was like sort of about progressing through the different levels, this is a much more expansive narrative structure. It's basically about a zoo for cryptids that is kind of exploiting them and the people that discover it and kind of the crisis within it. And it's about basically cryptos meeting capitalism and sort of the contradictions that are exposed through that. It's very much a animation for adults early on in the film. There's a pretty 
graphic sexual scene that you might not see in most animated films, but it's really interesting. It's surreal. It almost looks like collage art in some ways. And it was inspired by the writer and director team, basically, in many ways, as they worked on the animation together. It was inspired by one of their Dungeons and Dragons games. And there's definitely kind of that feel of it being a quest and adventure with all these interesting elements going on. I, I particularly really enjoyed it. I was a little more neutral on it. It was one that I was highly looking forward to. And sometimes that kind of harms you when you go in looking forward to a film a lot. Um, it was bizarre and I, I loved the creativity from it. It didn't work as much for me, um, but there was a lot of really interesting things in it. And I could totally see it, you know, I could see it disappearing, but I could also see it becoming a big cult classic too. Um, and I, I love films like that. And yeah, I, it would not fit a lot of our, you know, slightly older audience at the Grand for, but I would love to to be able to bring it in and and, and see what people think of it. I think it's a perfect weird elephant choice, but I, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it totally is. <laughs> Do you guys have any other ones you want us to hit on? One, one I wanted to mention was Wild Indian, which was a very kind of dark reflection on pain and violence as it echoes through generations. It's the feature debut of writer and director Lyle Mitchell Corbine Jr., who I think has proved himself as one to watch, where it's a story of two young friends, both of whom are indigenous, who cover up a violent act and later in their lives, as they've gone in very different directions, must face down the consequences. It's labeled as a thriller, but I think it's much more than that. It's very much about that generational trauma and how violence can stick with us. It stars Michael Gray Eyes, who's a fantastic actor in the lead and what is a very different performance for him as he takes a very dark turn in a way that some people have felt was a little intense, but I think was what made it interesting in that he's very much a broken person who commits acts of violence and it exposes why he does those things without excusing it, but offers a sliver of explanation where it gives you an insight into his psyche and his mind. It's very unflinching and very painful. And I'm sure it's going to generate a lot of conversations. So I think that is partially what makes it a pretty remarkable piece of work. For me, there's one visual that kind of sticks out to me and I don't want to go too much into it without giving it away as I think it is worth going in with as little knowledge as possible. But it's of this bullet casing in a hand where in each new situation, he keeps looking down and seeing it there. And to me, that speaks about how our past and present are always intertwined and how it's not something that is ever just gone. And I think for a film to create kind of a feeling and a visual like that and be the one that stuck with me and the more I reflect on is a powerful testament to how well constructed it is from a visual standpoint, from a story standpoint, from a performance standpoint. And I would really recommend seeing that one. It's it's might not be one that gets scooped up right away, but I, I hope that it gets the, the eyes and attention that it deserves because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in it. And, and I'll throw out one more thing. It's not a f one film itself, but it's the short packages that Sundance has. So one of the things that I was able to do a little bit more so this year because of the way they set it up, uh, where most of the features you had to watch kind of earlier in the festival and then the, towards the end of it, I was able to watch the short packages. And they have five short packages of just narrative films, two documentary shorts packages and one animation package. And I've got all seven of let's eight of those in there at the end. Uh, and the, the nice thing about that, especially when you're watching at home, if you get a few minutes into a short package and you said, this one's not going to work, you just move on to the next one. Um, and it's, I'm always kind of surprised at Sundance. 
you know, Sundance is a, they have thousands and thousands of films who submit to Sundance, but I typically don't like their short film packages. Um, I think I'm always surprised what gets in. And, and so I saw all those short packages and I picked out six films that I would love to bring to Tacoma out of all those probably a hundred short films. I found six. Uh, and one thing, if, if people want to watch for the Tacoma Film Festival in October, the, what I specifically look for at Sundance is I try to create a, a executive director, Philip Cowan picks short package for the film festival. I didn't do last year with, with the virtual film festival, um, but those six films that I saw are high, highly strong candidates that you might be able to see at the Grand later this year if, if the filmmakers are, are ready and able to, to send their films this direction. So uh, that's, I highly encourage people, most people don't take time to watch short films and a lot of times they're not always accessible to find, um, but short film packages can have some really great work, uh, results. And a few of the feature films during Sundance each year were maybe shorts in a previous year and they've expanded it. So it's, it's, it's always fun to maybe see a short one year and then a few years later see it expand and see a just greater vision of what that film could be. I remember your 2019 picks from the Tacoma Film Festival shorts and they were pretty amazing. A little bit of humor, a little bit of suspense, a lot of humanity, and I love that. Well, we like to end every show by providing some additional items we would have loved to have talked about, but just did not have the time in our segment, Thoughts on Thoughts. Gentlemen, what are some extra things you wish you had time to mention, but didn't get around to in this conversation? For me, it would be talking more about some of the great stuff that the Northwest Film Forum does. Obviously, in the context of this film festival, I got to mention how they were a local partner and they had some of their own programming, but just generally all the year round, they're very unique presence in the in the area where they're both supporting local filmmakers putting on different programs hosting a lot of diverse voices i think they're really really supportive and really really great and to see them be a partner in the sundance film festival is only just a small sliver of all the great work that they do so i I, i'll bring up one thing that has nothing to do with sundance itself but has to do with film here locally and i can kind of break the news on this that we haven't announced publicly on this but uh, with the funding through Tacoma Creates, the grant is going to buy a portable outdoor screen. Um, and so that's one of the things with, as COVID keeps going on, uh, we're going to get out in the community and in various places, particularly in places that maybe don't aren't used to coming to the grand films and take films out into the community to see films that, that they want to see or films that we think that they'd love to see. Um, and so that's going to be a new wrinkle that we're going to be able to add in our programming over the next year. How exciting. Wow, we're going to have to get this podcast out ASAP so we can keep the scoop. (laughs) Well, that's it for this episode. Gentlemen, where can people find you or what social media are you on? For me, it's typically just on Twitter. It's at Eclectic Hutch, which I got an email calling me by that name. That's not my actual name, but it's just at Eclectic Hutch. And I tweet about film and different things that I'm seeing covering there. And for me, it's through the Grand Cinema. The, the best way I'd say is go to grandcinema.com and at the very bottom of the page, there's a link to all of our uh, social media accounts from uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that. So go down there and that's, that's the easiest way to find it. Well, you can follow us on social media. I am on Twitter at Indie Arts Voice. And I'm on Twitter at JP Avila. You can find more info about the show on our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or our website at So ISO Podcast. And if you like the show, please subscribe, rate, review on your podcast platform of choice. And come back next month. Bye for now. Bye.